This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. When you meet a journalist as well attuned to the power of history, race, politics, and culture, well, it helps us to understand the moment that we are in in this country and the possibilities for us as a nation. And that person is Jelani Cobb. Jelani Cobb's been contributing to The New Yorker since 2012. He became a staff writer in 2015. And he writes frequently about all those issues in his most recent book, The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama and the Paradox of Progress, uh, is, is out. He's a professor of journalism at Columbia University and won the 2015 Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism for his columns on race, police, and injustice. Stay tuned here on Democracy in Color for Jelani Cobb. Thanks so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, I'm here in New York, which is, it's a really, it's a beautiful weather and mm-hmm. construction everywhere. I was asking, is the city under construction because of Trump? Mm-hmm. It's 100 days into his administration. I mean, things have, things have changed. Um, wh- how do you, what are you making of this moment in our history? Well, we're trying to fortify everything in case he tries to mess it up worse. Really? So, yeah, that's what it is. So the shelter in place things we're building. What, what no, do you mean? <laughs> you're joking, but you're not joking. <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm joking. But, you know, it's a thought that people pay more attention to now, uh, precisely because I think of this uh, fixation he has with nuclear weapons and also the brinksmanship that he is inexplicably playing with North Korea. And, um, you know, the other kind of old joke about New York City is that, you know, it'll be a great city once they finish it. And so there's always kind of a lot of construction going on here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but, you know, in terms of the first 100 days that he's been in office, you know, that's always been a kind of an arbitrary distinction is, you know, associated with uh, FDR. And from there, people have evaluated what presidents get done in the first 100 days. Well, it's always and, been, though, know. as long as I've been alive. Mm-hmm. 100 days is very significant. But mm-hmm. Trump is saying, oh, actually, that doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think in his case, it actually does matter. Uh, in a lot of other instances, if you were talking about even the first, the second Bush or the first Bush or... Uh, you know Obama. I mean, it's it's a maybe a symbolic kind of statement about where people are headed, uh, uh, and you know politically and and in terms of policy. But in this instance, I think it actually is uh, notable because it highlights the stunning lack of uh, really competence, you know, within that administration. So they failed at things, you know, successively things where they had slam dunks. You know, they failed at the uh, Obamacare repeal. They seem to have no knowledge or no understanding of federal judicial review, uh, and so they thought that they could simply create, a, you know, travel ban, you know, policy that was subject to, you know, no, uh, you know, federal oversight. Yeah, but when I read him threatening to break up the Ninth Circle, Circuit mm-hmm. Court, and coming coming from the Bay Area, like mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's our uh, court, and mm-hmm. breaking it up because they have the nerve to rule the mm-hmm. bans unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. I just Yeah, I mean I think that I think that he thought that the president ruled by fiat, you know, uh, and that executive yeah. orders were uh kind of like um edicts. Edicts, right, that that were beyond the the review of any other uh legislative or political body, you know, judicial body in the government and they didn't seem to have any understanding of that. Uh and so yeah, then there's the the you know, botched situation in Yemen, uh, the policy in Syria, which seems to be all over the place, the 
ongoing uh, screwiness, you know, with the uh, House investigation into the Russia situation and the Devin Nunes uh, fiasco. And, you know, it's really the kind of gang that couldn't shoot straight. And if you were looking at the first 100 days in that sense, you know, it gives you a pretty good indicator of what people were saying during the campaign, that this was someone who was fundamentally unfit uh, by temperament, but also uh, in terms of outlook and understanding of what government is and how government operates. Yeah, you know, as a, a journalist who also brings in a deep understanding of history and culture mm-hmm. and race, he's done more than botch, uh, mm-hmm. you know, legislative or, or initiatives. He's actually shifted our culture. Can you speak to mm-hmm. that just in a hundred days? And I guess we could add in the campaign too, how he's changed what it is to live in America right now. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just really quickly, I, th- I think there are a couple of things in terms of policy that are important in terms of where people are going. That's in the do- Department of Justice. Uh, and that's the thing I think is most troubling is what Jeff Sessions is doing and what they where they're headed. Then you have a recent uh, article on that yeah, in the New yeah, Yorker. Yeah, when they're they're backing away from any kind of uh, DOJ oversight of police departments, troubled, chronically troubled police departments, uh, and you know, that is uh, you know particularly notable uh, given what we've seen in the last three years, where many of these uh, consent decrees from the Department of Justice were requested by the police departments themselves. Uh, And so police departments have been saying, yes, we have a problem here, and we want the Department of Justice to help us fix it. And the Department of Justice is paradoxically saying, we don't think there's any problem. All right, so let's take a step back. A lot of your reporting, for The New Yorker, and you Mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. give me, you know, fill in more details around that, started in looking at what happened in Ferguson, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the shooting of Mike Brown. Um, and lay, lay out for us sort of where what you saw then and mm-hmm. what, was, what was the potential and why Jeff Sessions saying he's not, you know, DOJ's not going to be involved. What does that mean? What so, does that look like? So here's, here's the amazing thing. Ferguson is, is kind of uh, at the center of all of this. Uh, when people looked at the police department and the the request came from the Ferguson PD to investigate what had happened there. And the DOJ under Eric Holder uh, did release two reports. The first one uh, said that they believe that Darren Wilson, the officer there, had fired under reasonable circumstances. And that was controversial because you know many people said that he uh, fired at Michael Brown when he had his hands up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was the first DOJ report. But the bigger, more substantive one was about the policy and practices in the Ferguson PD, uh, in which they were essentially uh, bankrolling the rest of the city based upon tickets, unreasonable uh, tickets and summonses that were being issued to people who lived in low-income communities. And you wrote a lot about that. Yeah, I mean, I a lot of a, a mm-hmm. lot of this came to light because of the work that you were doing. Right. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about that, which is that Ferguson was a tinderbox. And while there was, after the uh, decision of the grand jury to not indict Darren Wilson, uh, there was some violence there. But it was nowhere on the scale of how bad things could have been. And one of the notable things about it was that, you know, Eric Holder was in the middle of the breach that people, there was a distinct difference when this was just a Ferguson PD or even the state of uh, the Missouri State Police uh, situation versus the community in Ferguson. Uh, And when Eric Holder came in, people were willing to kind of step back for a second and say, 
oh, well, let's see what happens. Uh, you know, activists could then say to angry community members, let's not do anything crazy. Let's let Eric Holder have a chance to actually look into this and see what he says. So in a way, it uh, minimized what could have been damaged. Right, I been remember, but I remember the, the, the Ferguson protests, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the pictures of just this armed, almost like militarized police right. force mm-hmm. against unarmed protesters. That's right. and, uh, against unarmed protesters, yeah. yeah. I'll never forget that. And, uh, you know, one of the most chilling things that uh, was said to me during the, the course of the Ferguson situation was that uh, in looking at the use of force and the, the kind of abject contempt that the police department had for the citizens as well as the uh, the media, and you know, I was talking with a gentleman, an older gentleman who had lived there all his life, and I said, you know, I'm not surprised by their behavior, but I am surprised that they are not better at covering up. And he said to me, "What makes you think they ever had to be?" Mm. <laughs> and uh, it was a sh- shocking thing where they they were able to operate in the way they had openly. Uh, with you know very little uh, you know repercussions, yeah, right? There right. are very few repercussions for, for any of these things. Now, if you take that in a microcosm and say that there are these departments across the country where you've had these kind of problems, you know, Chicago being one of them, Baltimore being another, and we could kind of go down the list: Cleveland, you know, and uh, Newark, you know, other police departments. No one in those departments uh, can say, or the people who are running those departments have generally said, yeah, we have a problem here, or we want to figure out how to do this better. Uh, And so the DOJ uh, under Jeff Sessions has essentially said that this is, uh, you know, I think he said, stigmatizing police departments for the base on the actions of a a handful of bad apples. Uh, And so, you know, this is... I'm trying to really wrap my mind around Mm -hmm. what you're telling me, because you've been living in this and reporting Mm -hmm. on this for years. On one hand, we have a situation in this country where you have a highly militarized police officers that on a regular shoot unarmed black and brown mm-hmm. actually people of all color black mm-hmm. and black and brown most most often mostly, black and brown right mm-hmm. uh, uh, people mm-hmm. and uh, are very seldom held accountable for that mm-hmm. um, and then on the other hand you have a, a Department of Justice who was saying where they were going to get involved mm-hmm. under Obama mm-hmm. Now Jeff Sessions says, actually, we have no role. Right. What is that going to do to the movements that are trying to hold police departments accountable and to stop these police killings of unarmed citizens? Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this is that the movements that are trying to hold police accountable had been stigmatized for creating violence. But from my observations, most of those movements were trying uh, very steadfastly to prevent violence. They were trying to come up with strategies that would make people who were even angrier, people who may not have had an activist uh, orientation but were just, you know, angry about what was happening. We're trying to say, these are the ways that we can channel your energy into something that is productive that won't, you know, result in violence. Now, it's more difficult to do that. Uh, And so you create a situation that's even more dangerous. Uh, And you also send the signal to police officers who are problematic that there is no oversight, that there will be no consequences for the kind of behavior that we've seen time and time again in the past four or five years. So Jeff Sessions is underscoring or giving a strong message to departments, hey, you know what, Uh, we're not going to get involved, so therefore there's not going to be 
That's um, absolutely federal yeah. accountability. And That's absolutely what he's saying. And sometimes saying that directly to police officers. Yeah, I, right. I, I was remembering something that you'd um, recently written that said people have an expectation that history repeats itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was thinking about Jack Kennedy mm-hmm. and his role in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and said, okay, the federal government's going to get involved to enforce laws if the local municipalities mm-hmm. or the states are not willing to mm-hmm. in issues of desegregation and issues of voting rights and things like that. Um, and that was a powerful symbol for the people who were part of movements who were trying to hold the local governments accountable. Mm-hmm. And this is as powerful, but in the opposite way. In the opposite direction. It's yeah. a chilling effect. Mm-hmm. And we can see this kind of uh, across you know, institution after institution. Uh, you know, same thing with the EPA, where you have a climate change denier who's now in charge of the EPA. Uh, or if you're, you know, looking at um, uh, education, you know, where someone who has very little education background, who's nonetheless, you know, Secretary of Education, who was just put in charge of civil rights, the Civil Rights Division uh, of the Department of Education, a person who believes that white people have a problem being discriminated against. And so that tells you, um, the level of empathy or sympathy they have about yeah. systematic and entrenched racism. And I'm sitting in, in, in the studio just shaking my head going, yeah. there's so much bad news. And let me just mm-hmm. tell you where I was 24 hours ago. Uh, I was uh, standing in Berkeley mm-hmm. with our producer of Democracy mm-hmm. in Color, Lulu Matute, mm-hmm. who's a senior. Mm-hmm. And she had finals and she needed to be in class at three o'clock. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't go on campus. Why? Because white supremacists Mm -hmm. had been emboldened in the wake of Ann Coulter's Mm -hmm. say she's going to speak and then not speak. And I was really, really overwhelmed at that moment by, you know, when I was hearing the helicopters overhead that um, Lulu has gone through so much to be able to get an education and she's doing so well. And uh, the also chilling effect on her personal life and her ability to get an education or feel safe um, is profound as well. Mm-hmm. What do you make of these white supremacists going into the heart of what they call the heart of resistance mm-hmm. um, the, in California and making these shows? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's more that, than a show, I should say, because they get into, they provoke, um, you know, uh, these fights with right. people who don't want them there. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, there's been a signal that's been sent. And, you know, that, that signal was, you know, very clearly delivered over the course of the 2016 campaign, you know, we saw Donald Trump begin, the initial rationale for his campaign was that uh, there were Mexican rapists loose uh, in the country. Mm. And that's what he said. His first public pronouncement is a campaign statement. And, you know, that's not even a dog whistle. That's a bullhorn. That is exactly the rhetoric of, you know, right-wing white supremacist organizations. Now, and then you try mm-hmm. to put a group, a whole group of people mm-hmm. um, in a position of defending, we're not racist. Once you do that, you're mm-hmm. playing on his field. Right. And right. you're in a defensive You are, and, that, and that's been uh, the tone of the, the um, election. It was also kind of frustrating because uh, with... You know, we saw this previously with uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and then, you know, with Ann Coulter. I read your article mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. You made the assertion that Milo um, made some mistakes about who oh, he thought was protesting him and oh, why. The people responding to him, I think, made mistakes. 
uh, because it, this was a bait. Like what people have been attempting to do was make the right look like victims, and this is what you know Trump had had basically weaponized the sense of white victimhood over the course of 2016, uh, and it's become a very formidable uh, political asset of his. And so, if you could put Milo out and make it appear that he was the one that's being crucified, that he was the one that was uh, being victimized, and he was the person who was just trying to exercise his right to you know speak his opinions. And then you see an audience that is kind of ill-informed in the first place. It furthers it, their agenda of portraying themselves as victims. Although the same thing with Ann Coulter, for that matter. I mean, that's why mm-hmm. they're going into these places. That's why they're going there. Going to Berkeley. and. I mean, right. if you note, people were not protesting. Ann Coulter has been around for 20 years. People have been protesting her speeches. She goes and speaks where it's she wants. It's a yawner, yeah. Yeah, like nobody cares what she has to She's say. She's the crazy woman on Fox. Is right. Yeah. And they, they, she was, uh, everything about this said set up. Everything about this said the best response would be to ignore her or to have a different event across campus. But what they really wanted, uh, they got, which was, we are not able to get our views across. We are the victims. Uh, There are people who are threatening us with violence. And uh, it's harder now to kind of depict them as who they really are. And you also, uh, I I wonder about this weaponized victimization Mm -hmm. and how to... How? What are your observations as a journalist in terms of those who are able to cut through that mm-hmm. um, and really play a whole different play a whole different game um, mm-hmm. and not go there, not be baited, not not you know, is it that the attention just needs to be shifted mm-hmm. and that's a powerful response to that or what are you seeing? I mean, I think that we have to one deal with objective reality. Like it's very difficult um, to to say that. Like you you presume that we're all operating on the same terms. But we really aren't, you know. So in public opinion data, you know, we we found this in the beginning in the Obama years, an increasing kind of ticking upward over the course of his tenure in the presidency, that when you polled people, there were growing numbers of white people who thought that they were the primary victims of racism. That is objectively not true. That's objectively not true. But emotionally, that's where people the. It, we're looking at the comp- the competition between objective reality and emotional reality, and people have deferred more often to emotional reality. And so, for people who feel like they've gotten a short end, they're looking at uh, blacks, they're looking at Latinos, they're looking at immigrants, they're looking at Muslims, and they're able to conjure a version of the world in which all these people have advantages that they do not have. And uh, in order to further that, you have politicians who are willing to pander to that, and that's what we're really combating. And if you noticed, it was a kind of difficult for a lot of people who were on the left, especially journalists of color, uh, it's been difficult in the uh, going from the election forward, really, because the initial response to you know people empowering a white supremacist running for president mm-hmm. right. was to defend his voters, to say, oh, we shouldn't call the Trump voters racist and you know, there are all these yeah. kinds of pieces that there's almost a genre yeah. of newspaper article defending the Trump voter. Yes. Mm-hmm. And let's be objective and let's understand their needs. Right. Now, of course, if we were to go back, you know, 20 years when lots of African-Americans were flocking to Louis Farrakhan speeches, no one was saying, let's understand, let's understand, let's their, understand needs. their needs. No, they were they calling were saying, them racist. Right, they were, they're uh, listening to this racist. They're empowering this demagogue. He's a bigot. Uh, and so on. And so I think there's this idea that um, that people deserve empathy. It's kind of empathy default 
you know. And but who deserves the empathy? But yeah. as a journalist, I mean, I can imagine the, ch- the challenge because you're trying to write from a perspective of understanding the communities, mm-hmm. community from uh, from where you've come from, but also communities who are expressing uh, dissatisfaction or a, a whole different reality than but, the white supremacist. But look, but look, we have seen in, in uh, opinion data that resentment toward immigrants and uh, kind of resentment toward racial resentment toward black people was a foundational element of the Trump coalition. It's not that somebody is just kind of not putting economic, this, right, it was economic, it's anxiety, economic, economic anxiety. It was racism. Right, it was race. It was racism. And that just came out. You've just been right. writing about that. Yeah, and that's, this is objectively true. And I went to one of these rallies. I went to a rally in North Carolina. Uh, and if this was simply about you know, kind of economic interest and anti-globalism and populism, there would be no need to have the vile, genital-referencing, sexist commentary that they had on those slogans about Hillary Clinton. Mm. You know, there's not, they weren't critiquing Hillary Clinton's economic policy. Mm-hmm. They were critiquing her gender. Mm-hmm. They were critiquing her as a symbol of... Uh, a whole array of things that have empowered women in ways that people find unsettling. This brings up a question in my mind about why white women were so supportive of mm-hmm. Trump, given all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bigger question. Right. Um, and sexism doesn't just impact men. It right. impacts women mm-hmm. as well. But uh, racism is, I would say, you know, kind of when we were talking about the first 100 days, Open racism mm-hmm. has, um, in some ways, it, it shifted our center. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel off balance. I feel like I'm defending things that were that were fundamental. That were given, right? A year ago, right? Uh, my political um, coming of age, um, in part, was um, in the wake of the Rodney King beatings mm-hmm. and the trial of the officers, and also trying him as a person, even though he was a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for people too young enough, too young to remember the Rodney King beating, it was one of the first captured on video beatings. It was, it was a dozen officers maybe mm-hmm. beating um, uh, Rodney King, a black man. He was already on the ground, mm-hmm. and he was a motorist that had been stopped. And this is a story we hear again and again. The movement after Rodney King, the response, the pushback. Are we still in sort of the initial phases of trying to? Um, hold it's it's not it's it's kind of like the state and state actions against black and brown people. Are we still in the initial phase? It feels like we're in a cycle. Doesn't feel like we're out of mm-hmm. a particular you know that, that um, police departments are being held more accountable. So just because you write so much about history, mm-hmm. and because the Rodney King um, beating was what twenty twenty five years 25 ago twenty five years twenty five years ago um, in. Two days, I think. Yeah. This, so it makes sense for mm-hmm. us to say, okay, from Rodney King to Ferguson till till now. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, what are you? What are you saying in terms of your analysis of where we are? So I mean, it's interesting. Actually, the Rodney King beating was twenty five years ago tomorrow. The riots began. Actually, you say twenty five years ago tomorrow, uh, April 29th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this arc, um, you know, in which what we saw with Rodney King. Um, was not shocking, you know. As you notice, people did not riot after the video of him being beaten came out, because the beating wasn't shocking. 
you know, people understood that this was something that happens. Mm. Um, and it was kind of within the intuitive. And all these, I will say, in all these communities I've gone to, where I've been in Baltimore, um, and I've been in Cleveland, I've been in uh, in Ferguson, uh, I've been in Newark, I've been, all these places that people have been talking about. The one dynamic that you do not witness there is surprise. Mm. You know, because what happens is that the video simply verifies what had been a communal experience before that. You know, people who are in the communities know that these kinds of things can happen and they know they, they, that they do happen. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in Ferguson, there were kind of people who would drive around uh, the, you know, to make sure they didn't stop, drive through Ferguson. So they'd go through the highway and then loop back around to some place they had to go because it was known you know, that the police there functioned in particular ways. It sounds like know. stories my dad uh, would tell me about a family that was in Arkansas. That mm-hmm. uh, uh, There's only certain places you could stop. That's so right. you're, ba- you're not going to go mm-hmm. to the bathroom mm-hmm. or you're not going to eat that's right. for long stretches. It just yeah. wasn't safe. Yeah, that's right. And so the, the dynamic with Rodney King was not shock. But the, the shock was that you could show a video. The thing that we didn't know was that you could show a video that explicitly depicted his beating while he is on the ground and defenseless. You could show that to a jury of 12 people and get four non-guilty verdicts. But that's still true today. It is. You could see a video of him shooting down a 12-year-old in a park. You could show a video of... Mm -hmm. You can show a a video of the aftermath of someone who was stopped for... uh, Mm -hmm. Was this in... uh, now I can't even in, in Minnesota. Minnesota the yeah. girlfriend goes on um, right. Facebook Live. The names escape mm-hmm. me because there's so many. So many. Ex- ex- right. And the the awareness that we have it causes me and I know lots of people in my world trauma to see mm-hmm. um, people um, basically mowed down and um, abused and all that. Um, in just last in this last week, police uh, coming across some twelve and thirteen year olds that uh, mm-hmm. making a lie on the ground. I mean. Mm-hmm. It's still we see it now in our Facebook feeds, but it hasn't changed the system be, uh, behind it. No, and one of the things that happened when people had this great deal of enthusiasm around uh, about around body cameras, uh, and police have had enthusiasm around body cameras for different reasons. Uh, but uh, when people were talking about body cameras as something that would be a corrective to police behavior. There's a more disturbing element of this, which is that people can look at uh, you know, these videos of people being shot and, and then still conjure a rationalization where they're saying, oh, well, you shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have done that. So there were people who, who actually viewed um, the Eric Garner video and understood this as a video of someone resisting arrest, even as he's on the ground saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and so on. Uh, So the more fundamental question, the question that underlines policy, underlines legislation, uh, underlines kind of all these reports and correctives, is that none of this is effective unless you can get people to recognize the fundamental humanity of the people who are on the receiving end of this treatment. And you cannot recognize the fundamental humanity if you're driven by racism. No, that's, yeah. that's the definition that's it. of it. That's, that's the definition, it. yeah. When you're, you're a professor of journalism at mm-hmm. Columbia University, mm-hmm. when you, you work with grad students? I do. Mm-hmm. How do you prepare this next generation of journalists mm-hmm. to report in this environment? Well, it's interesting that you say that. 
uh, we've had lots of conversations about this, and we beginning literally the day after uh, the election. Uh, and one of the things that's notable about you know where I teach is that forty percent, roughly forty percent of our students are from abroad, and so there was this immediate shockwave where uh, students weren't their families wanted them to come home, uh, and you know they're families weren't sure that they were safe in the United States, given what was happening here politically. Like, where are they coming from? Um, they're coming from all over the world. But they have students who are certainly who were coming from uh, Middle Eastern countries, students who are coming from majority Muslim countries, uh, but even then just students of color, especially, who are uh, you know, looking at the tide of nativism that happened in the United States in November and saying, you know, is this really a good place to be? Uh, and one of the things that we have talked about there has been the reliance on, uh, you know, the principles of journalism and saying that, you know, this is someone who um, is a, habitually flouts the truth. And there is a virtue in being able to point to the truth, the verifiable truth, saying that we can prove that this is the case and we can show that this is the case. Um, and you said this and then this actually turns out to be that. Uh, and, you know, I think that it became more of a confirmation to uh, of the value of adhering to the kind of textbook principles of journalism, uh, where you you verify, you dig, you question, you're skeptical, uh, and you provide that information to the public. So that's what you're telling your journalism students, that you just have to keep pointing to the facts. Yeah, but- I mean, they're also kind of more defensive things. We also have been talking and about, you know, protecting your data. And one of the things that people don't know now about is about the uh, enhanced capacity that the federal government has at the border. Uh, you know, they're doing things like demanding people's uh, passwords for their social media accounts and uh, demanding access to their computers, which they actually have the power to do. Wait a minute. So mm-hmm. journalists, they're asking? Wait, who are they asking uh, this? This happens to people who are coming into the country, but it has happened to journalists. Um, uh, it's my understanding that it's happened in journalists. I won't say that it definitively has. But um, they have a broader you know, ability to uh, surveil you know, at, the, at the borders. Did they always have it and they're just going, you know, uh, crazy is, now? Or, you know? This has been a, a post-9-11 kind of expansion. Uh, and so we've kind of seen a creeping development of, of more and more authority there. Yeah, is it, you know, being in California, you know, they have a group of friends who wanting to go to the Mexican wine country, which mm-hmm. is a couple of uh, hours south of San Diego mm-hmm. over the border. What would have been a year ago, like... Hey, let's fly to San Diego. Let's drive to Valle de Guadalupe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's do wine tasting and stay in an Airbnb or whatever down there and drive back. Now is a conversation like, I want to make sure I don't get harassed at the border. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not even journalists. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, well, yeah, average, now, everyday people. Yeah, now people are, you know, just um, in response. They're doing things like putting all their data in a cloud in the cloud and not either not bringing devices with them at all or completely erasing everything from their devices and downloading it again when they get to the place where they had been traveling to. Wow. So the the work of a journalist is different now. We're oh, in a, very just different. a different world. Yeah, very different. I wanted to ask you about what is happening in Arkansas. Uh, I read that uh, Arkansas had the fourth mm-hmm. uh, Last night. Mm-hmm. death penalty. Uh, they carried out the, uh, the execution. Mm-hmm. What is happening in Arkansas? Why the rush? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Give us some context there. So one of the things about justice in this country is that it's supposed to, the, the antithesis of justice is a kind of arbitrary uh, practicing. This is why we have law. You know, the law is supposed to provide a generic sense of what the punishment for a particular offense is. Uh, but what we found with the death penalty is that it is, by definition, ar- arbitrary. Uh, it's impacted by socioeconomic status and so on. And we have the best example of that um, in Arkansas now, where they have pushed to and successfully uh, executed four people. They were attempting to execute eight people on death row. And they were doing this because their supply uh, of a lethal drug is about to expire. And so this I'm is I'm letting not, that... So again, right. there was like no response from me. Like, So their decision was based on a, the expiration date of a That's lethal right. drug. Right. Okay. Right. And so nowhere in any it wasn't of, about the the justice piece of it which no was, it's not it wasn't it's, about the crime wasn't about the. It's, it's kind of how many people can we execute many of the people have been on, on death row multiple decades um, but they were rushed to the death chamber to inject them with the drug uh, prior to it going bad and so by what is that a standard to administer justice uh, and you know the you know first uh, individual who was executed actually like the the second there was one last Friday then um, two on the same night Monday uh, was a diabetic amputee fifty two year old diabetic amputee all these people have done horrible things let's be very clear right they've done terrible things but there's no kind of justification to say that the society is somehow another safer because. We have taken a 52-year-old, high blood pressure, um, having a diabetic person and strapped them to a gurney and gave them an injection of a drug that's just about to go bad and eliminated their life. Mm. I was uh, thinking about the people of Arkansas, the political dynamic of Arkansas. And uh, Democracy in Color uh, did an analysis of the election, and this is something you've written about and mm-hmm. really aware of. Our demographics are changing. Arkansas is one of those. Mm-hmm. It's becoming browner and blacker. And mm-hmm. so um, as the demographic shifts, the, 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 the people in charge in making these kinds of decisions don't match the population mm-hmm. of the state. Wondering... But they don't have to. We'll say more about that. Well, this is one of the things that we've been talking about with gerrymandering and redistricting and so on, that uh, you can basically carve out niches wherein a minority policy, a minority party maintain, um, let me start that again. You can carve out niches whereby a minority population still maintains disproportionate political representation. And so there was a study that was uh, done two years ago, which uh, I found fascinating. The Reflective Democracy Campaign uh, put out a report you know, the, where you saw that uh, whites are 63% of the population uh, and they hold 91% of the elected offices. So they're already disproportionate. It's not simply a matter of being a majority, but it's a majority with a disproportionate amount of political power. There's no reason why you can't switch to being a minority with a disproportionate uh, degree of political power for the same mechanisms, the same ways that uh, we wound up with this position uh, in this position in the first place. So there's that. 
The other thing is that we've kind of sometimes naively thought that the browning of America heralded this more, uh, this kind of democratic sunrise. Well, there was Obama. Everyone put, well, we had a black president. Or as I said, you know, multiracial president. (laughs) We had a president who elevated uh, a Mm -hmm. lot of people of color, or significant numbers of people of color in federal or department or other kinds of, you know, we had um, a, a, a leader who would um, vocalize issues that hadn't come from the you know White House before, and now we have Trump. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to. It makes perfect trying, sense. In what way? That's the story of American history. Tell me more. When which you know Obama was seen by some people as a harbinger of a bright future. Uh, other people saw him. A significant number of people saw him as an omen of impending doom, uh, and. You know, that is how race has operated in this country, that we saw emancipation as a kind of step forward, you know, getting rid of the uh, horrible regime of slavery. But a significant population saw it as a threat to their, a quote unquote threat to their way of life. And that generated the violent backlash we saw uh, during Reconstruction and after. If we were to look at the Great Migration, where African Americans began migrating in pursuit of, uh, to the industrial centers in the North, the Midwest, and the West uh, in pursuit of better education, better uh, employment, better opportunities. And that generated backlashes among whites that were living in those places already. Uh, And we have not seen the civil rights movement, same example. We have not seen racial progress in this country without seeing exactly, almost textbook, the same style of uh, populist racial, uh, really revenge uh, politic that we've seen in this past year. The difference is the population mm-hmm. is different. Like, like that makes it, it worse. It, I mean, it was like I'm I'm looking at you across the table mm-hmm. in the studio, going, "Okay, there has to be a different at some point um, where we're in states. Uh, seven states mm-hmm. are a majority people of color mm-hmm. right now. Many, many more are on their way." Mm-hmm. Some of the majority people of color states, or soon to be, are in the South, where we're mm-hmm. seeing the strongholds of the, the right wing, the racist people at the top of the state legislatures and mm-hmm. the governors and, and senators and things like that. But you're saying to me it makes total sense. Yeah. Or it's even... Yeah. Because... I, mean, I don't want to believe look, it. I want to believe. I, I want to believe. But let's look at it in this situation, Right. In which case are people more likely to be vigilant about holding on to power? Uh, A situation in which there are 100 of you and only 20 of the other people? Or there are 20 of you and 100 of the other people? Mm. So the increasing numbers of people of color in these states have made people more concerned, more alarmed, more uh, you know, eager to cling to uh, the ideas that they're being threatened. Uh, and it's like the kind of prairie circling of the wagons, you know, in defense. And so that kind of retrenchment is entirely predictable. And historians have known this for a really long time. Uh, and so as a matter of fact, when we look at this politically, those states that are uh, closest, that have the largest populations of black people, also have the most right-wing politics. So we're talking about Mississippi, Mississippi. Louisiana, um, Alabama, 
um, you know, the key ones. Uh, and then even, you know, Georgia, which is, uh, you know, pretty high up there. I think black people about 17 percent or somewhere yeah. around there. Um, but the largest black populations in Mississippi and in Louisiana. Yeah. But then we uh, look at, like, I just wanted to say, like in Georgia, mm-hmm. we have the first really good chance to have mm-hmm. an African-American woman as governor, mm-hmm. uh, Stacey Abrams, Stacey yeah. Abrams mm-hmm. who's actually a brilliant strategist mm-hmm. and um, uh, has been focused on that, you know, Georgia, like registering and engaging voters of color, not just in the Atlanta metro area, but throughout the whole state mm-hmm. as a way of, of turning um, the politics in, in, in Georgia. But it is no joke in terms of mm-hmm. the structural stuff you're talking about. No, been putting, not. It's because not. they're making it more difficult. You can register voters all you want, but if mm-hmm. you get to the polls, first of all, if we have a party, uh, we uh, if we have a Democratic Party who uh, doesn't have inspiring candidates, who doesn't speak mm-hmm. to the issues, and then you have a difficulty of actually casting a vote, and then you have gerrymandering, it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's all the above, it but it's, it's meant to. Now, here's a notable thing, right? Um, when... When Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses, people flipped out and they said, oh, well, you know, we're at this great moment because a black candidate has won in a state that has it's like some like a 3% or 4% black population. Uh, and if you wanted to look at this in the kind of long term, that's actually what you would expect. It would be easier for a black candidate to win in a state where there are virtually no black people than it is to win white voters in a state where there are a ton of them. Because voters in Iowa are less have less reason to feel quote unquote threatened by black people. Whereas voters in Mississippi, uh, he lost by 30 something points. Was nowhere near ever going to be able to win uh, white voters there. This and so is, it's the kind of inverse. And by the way, uh, when Jesse Jackson ran in 1988. Yes, I worked on that campaign. He won Vermont. You remember? Yes. That's right. Vermont has an even smaller black population than Iowa does. That's interesting. Yeah. The same rule applies. So I'm depressed right now because I, <laughs> where is the first hundred days of the Trump administration? And we've got these structural things. We've got so, this racism. I feel the weight. You know, I feel the weight. <laughs> historians generally do not um, you know, excel at kind of exuberance. <laughs> you know? I, I do. I, I started my career as a high school teacher, and mm-hmm. uh, I taught uh, bi- in a bilingual classroom, and I translated big swaths of uh, Howard's Inn because mm-hmm. that was the only kind of history when you pointed to uh, people who had courage, people who mm-hmm. worked across mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. people who had this vision for a democracy that didn't exist mm-hmm. that I could even talk about. And I'm in that one time. But where do you find your inspiration? And I know you're a journalist and mm-hmm. facts are, but you you have this uh, sense of history, this as a historian, as a, a cultural critic. Mm-hmm. What gives you some inspiration now, personally? or So that's the other the side country? of it. That's the other side of it, right? So when we look at these dynamics, I think there's a kind of tempered optimism, a kind of realist optimism that comes from this, which is not to say that you can't, that the kind of forces of progress can't triumph. It's to say that you have a very clear assessment of what exactly those forces are up against. And so surely um, we have many things uh, to be thankful for, Every, everything, our ability to write, our ability to, to get education, you know, our ability uh, to the extent that we can exist in the labor market uh, the fact that you know African Americans, by and large, have the right to vote, even if there are attempts to suppress it, that women have the right to vote, that we have 
uh, occupational safety uh, guidelines, that we have an eight-hour day, that we could go through the list, that there's not child labor, um, that child labor is prohibited. All of those things were the product of struggles that were facing, at some point, nearly insurmountable odds. It seemed like it wasn't doable at the it time. It seemed like it wasn't doable at the time. And so and someday, so, someday soon, we'll be able to look back and say uh, the things that vex us as a right. society. I think you know, there's, a, there's a good chance that if we apply our the entirety of our abilities uh, and the entirety of our knowledge and our understanding, that we can push the world in that direction. Did you get this perspective at Howard? I mean, how did you become you? Because you are, uh, you are one of the sharpest, brightest, uh, most poignant writers and mm-hmm. uh, observers of the mm-hmm. moment that we're in. Thank yeah, you. you know. um, Howard was crucial. You know, you know, I was there in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and you know that was a moment where. We were fighting against apartheid on college campuses. You were involved in that struggle. I was so you were an activist protests. I was an activist on campus. Yeah. And, uh, we had, uh, you know, a protest in 1989 where we shut down the university you know, because Lee Atwater, the Republican strategist for the 1988 presidential campaign, was placed on our board of trustees. Uh, yeah, that's weird. Very weird. Very weird. But he was responsible for the Willie Horton, the notorious Willie Horton ad. And we felt that someone who, with those kinds of politics, was not the best person to be representing a, a, a historically HBC. black college. Do yeah. you think? University. Uh, and so I really kind of cut my teeth there. And you know, we had a class uh, that was <clears throat> a requirement uh, called Black Diaspora. So we had to go out into the world understanding the diaspora and the way that it had been shaped by you know, the forces of colonialism and industrialism and you know, uh, the slave trade and you know, what the struggles against those things had looked like in different parts of the world. And so uh, that was very much the crucible that I began, in which I began thinking about these things. We need more of you. <laughs> well, that's why you're at Columbia. <laughs> we, Thank you. we, we need more of you. And uh, I think the first time uh, we met, you were on the road for Black History Month. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. And, you know, and you were saying, that's what do you do during yeah. Black History Month is try to it's like Black History Month uh, for historians. It's like uh, April for accountants. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, a little more enjoyable. <laughs> it's probably much more enjoyable, I presume. But then again, I, you know, my accountant loves what he does, so maybe you know, we're equal. Um, but yeah, it it uh, is really great that there's um, a desire to have these conversations, uh, and you know, you get to go around and and talk about where we are, how we got to be here, and, and so on, yeah. So what sustains you? I mean, I know you don't write mm-hmm. and speak all the time. Mm-hmm. You gotta do some other stuff. It's the thing um, that keeps you, keeps you lifted. You know, I, I read, uh, fly my drone, uh, which is like- You have a drone? Time. I do. Where do you and, fly, in Central Park? Yeah, sometimes in Central Park, Morningside Park. And, is it the one with the camera? You know, on the... Yeah, yeah, I take pictures of, like my, with my drone. How's, how far, what is, okay, first of all, why do you love the drone? <laughs> because it's, uh, it's as relaxing. The way people talk about flying, like pilots say it relaxes them. Like that, I have like maybe a small percentage of that, uh, which is that sometimes I'll like just go up and look at the skyline, you know, like in the evenings or whatever. And you know, that's a very relaxing thing. Yeah. Uh, and you so, take pictures of the, I mean, I can imagine yeah, how beautiful yeah, yeah. it would mm-hmm. be. Do you actually post those pictures? I don't. I'm kind of self-conscious about that. Like, 
I know how to write, so I post things that I write, but I'm still figuring this out. So it's like I, I don't, you know, post like that. I yeah. think you should. I'm just going to mm-hmm. throw it out there because I'm kind of new-ish on Instagram. I think mm-hmm. you should have like drone pictures on Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a whole, a whole other thing. Maybe I'll give that a try. <laughs> well, you're wonderful. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for taking the time um, to talk to us. And I have uh, been a longtime admirer. Thank you. Of your Thank work you. Mm-hmm. and uh, want you to keep on doing you. Thank you. And likewise. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can check out Jelani Cobb uh, with The New Yorker and uh, a Black History Month event <laughs> New Year. Um, near you. <laughs> near, near you. Thanks so much right. for joining us on Democracy in Color. Thank you. Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded at the Core Club in Manhattan and produced by Lulu Matute with technical support from Will Baker. Special thanks to our esteemed guest, Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.